Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, my dude, it is good to see you yet again. I know, I love seeing you, and today's a really weird one because you're the only person I'm looking at. Yeah, that's all you need to see, dude. Just me and you. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. Just together. (laughs) You and I, I don't know the words. Making it. Yeah, so all you listeners do not need to be alarmed, but it will just be Stan and Shane on the breakdown and the wind down today. Dave and Zach had a couple family matters to attend to, but they will be back next week. So your your two your two favorite co-hosts, the good co-hosts, are going to tag team this one. We're going to do the breakdown together, the wind down together. Um, Zach and I had already recorded our interview uh, with Gall Schlesinger for the dive down. So he's going to be in the second segment of the show. And then, you know, we'll all be back next week, hopefully. On this week's episode, we are going to break down the results of SCG Regionals Weekend and look at the top eights of 10 tournaments and the data we have available to us. Then in the dive down, Shane and Zach are talking to GPLA runner-up Gall Schlesinger and going deep on Hardened Scales Affinity. And finally, in the wind down, I'll be back to do a conversation with Shane about Faithless Looting whether it is bannable, and perhaps why it wasn't banned in the most recent BNR announcement. Let's first start off this episode with a quick bit of housekeeping, because we've got a lot of exciting stuff we want to touch on right up top. So we want to start by thanking a bunch of people who have been leaving us really kind and generous reviews on iTunes. Not only do we know that takes a lot of your time and effort, but we're so grateful since it helps us in a big way in finding new listeners and attracting the audience that would benefit from the show. So special shout out to Fire Run 29, Braxton W, GB Elves, please. We don't know who you are or what you want, but we're grateful for you. Hugh, whose name we can't fully pronounce, but thank Hugh. And for previous reviews, basically since we started the show, some of our earliest fans, Skimpy Pete, Moonbraid, Dean A, Woodrow, Muffin, Goldilocks, and Pelham. We don't know who you are, but we love you and thank you. And if you haven't left a review on iTunes yet and you use iTunes, please do that. It would help us in a big way, especially if you like the show. If you don't like the show, don't tell anyone. And thanks to all the new Twitter followers. Uh, It looks like you all really took Dave's encouragement last week to heart to give us a follow on Twitter. You know, we hope that we can continue to have some fun interactions with you all there. We're going to be trying to post more things like episode previews, uh, chat if we're in a weekend tournament, you know, Twitch stream alerts on the Twitter account. Um, So that's at the dive down, all one word on Twitter. We're also going to be trying to start more conversations in our Reddit threads, uh, which we have on Modern Magic and Spikes every week. And we want to start by asking people a question in there each week to really get some conversation going rather than just waiting to hear, you know, how much everyone loves the episode in there every week. So if you're a Reddit user, keep an eye on those posts we do there every week and, and get involved. It'd be great to hear from our listeners there. All right, so with that out of the way, let's just dive right into the breakdown. We have 
a lot of tournament data to go over because we just finished SCG Regional Season 1 weekend. Yes. And at the time of recording, we have top 8 results for 10 of the 11 tournaments that happened. We're still missing New Jersey. And Shane, I actually reached out to Star City Games earlier today to be like, hey, where's New Jersey? And they said they're working with the tournament organizers. They're going to publish that data as soon as they have it. They just don't have it ready yet. Maybe the mob got involved and Tony Soprano's family decided to squander the hot new tech that emerged in the Garden State. So, <laughs> so, um, so I kind of see these modern regionals as kind of like the ultimate casual spike event because they happen simultaneously in all these different cities, you know, primarily east of the Mississippi, of course, because it's SEG. So we get this really interesting cross-section of like the non-GP modern metagame. And in that way, it seems a lot more relevant to our audience than kind of breaking down the most recent GP or like even the modern challenge because people there at the regionals are much more likely to kind of bring their favorite deck or maybe their only deck. So you always see a few rogue decks pop their heads up into those top eights or they even can take down the entire event like we saw happen in one of these this, uh, this weekend. We all love talking about the more spiky metagame of the GP like we did just last week. But for many of our listeners, breaking down the regionals is like the best way to get a handle on what they might see at their LGS. What do you think, Stan? Do you uh, agree with my assessment? Disagree? Oh, totally. For me, the regionals is a great reminder that people are going to play the decks that they know and love. And realistically, not a lot of people have the chance to make a pivot to whatever is the hotness that week or that month. So as far as I'm concerned, you really hit it on the head that this is like the ideal casual spike tournament. And it's the tournament that can attract a ton of casual spikes that may not have the means to travel to a GP or fly to a tournament. And because there's, you know, there were 12 scheduled across the country, Minnesota got canceled due to a storm. And even with the 11 that happened all across, you know, the central and eastern United States, we're getting like thousands of people out over the course of one weekend to play their favorite foiled out decks and the new stuff that they've been learning and really testing their chops against their friends and all the local LGS spikes that are coming together. I mean, honestly, I'm... I think that we get more out of this metagame assessment and the breakdown of these 10, 11 tournaments, hopefully eventually, than we will even from the two GPs that are happening this coming weekend that we're going to break down next week, I think. So it's awesome to see two GPs. That's a real competitive metagame, but this is kind of the every person, you know, everyone, the, the, the more casual spikes as we advertise this show too. So it's going to be rad to break this down with you, Stan. Let's let's do the first breakdown part, right? Where we look at the archetypes that have the most decks represented in the top 80 decks that made these 10 event top eights. Yeah, so the clear breakout deck of the weekend was Is It Phoenix. Oh yeah, that totally broke out, came out of nowhere. Came out of nowhere. Who knew the strategy worked? Uh, 18 people made top eight with Is It Phoenix. And although we don't know the full meta game breakdown, all we have are a bunch of top eight lists. I have a feeling there were more than 18 Is It Phoenix players over the course of this weekend and 11 tournaments across the country. Yeah, I mean, this is like, what, like over 22% of the the top eight. So that's kind of collar tugging to read. Yeah, the next most popular deck was Mono Green, Tron, and Blue White Control. Both of them had five five appearances in top eights. Yeah. Dredge, Amulet, Titan, and Affinity all had four top eight appearances. Ad nauseum with three. That's nice. 
I only saw three affinity decks. That fourth one was actually a hardened scales deck. Oh, was they it? Listed the, they listed the Boston wrong, one wrong. Oh, thank you for clarifying. War Prison appeared twice. Titan Shift appeared twice. Mono White Martyr Proc? Or is it just called Mono White Martyr these days? Sure. Merfolk appeared twice. Two Humans decks. Three Hardened Scales decks. Two GDS. We got all the tribal. We got, there was two Spirits decks too. One was Blue White, one was Bant. Yeah, so one of the things, we, we can go on and on and list all these decks because there's a bunch of one-of appearances as well. But No, we're not doing that. To me, what this shows is that Modern is still super diverse, as it should be. That's kind of the, what makes this a flagship format and the appeal for so many players. And not only that, if you're really good with, an, with a deck, even if it's three or four years old, you can still do well at a competitive tournament with it. Sure. I mean, like Affinity, unless you're running some of the newer updates, it's still most of the same deck. I mean, Stan, it's just a lot of Phoenix decks, man. I mean, do people just seriously not know how to beat this yet? It's not a, a newcomer. I mean, relatively it is, but it's been around for months now. Is, is, it, is it just so generally powerful that it's realistically 20% of the competitive metagame? I mean, that's banned territory for sure. Yeah, Phoenix is really strong. It's a little scary how many people are doing well with it. Part of the issue is you need a specific strategy for beating it. You have to know what its threats are. And also the deck just wins out of nowhere sometimes, even when you think you've stabilized the board. A quick anecdote for based on a, a game that I had recently. I was playing against Is It Phoenix. It was actually a mirror match at my LGS. I had my opponent dead on board. His hand was empty. His board was clear. All I had to do was untap and swing. He draws a Serum Visions into a Serum Visions, into a Manamorphose, and a Lightning Bolt, and then got, I think, two or three birds back, bolted to the face, and just one out of nowhere. And I think this is what people are referring to when they talk about the deck's consistency and uh, how it, resilient it is. Because you might think that it's over, but when a deck is only running 18 lands and can filter its draws with cards like Serum Visions and Opt, you're going to have blowouts that come out of nowhere. So... Does that make the deck too good? Other decks can have a blowout out of nowhere, too, I think. Yeah, but Stan, while I love your anecdote, um, looking at stats, it's over 20% of the top eight. That's bad, I think. I mean, people are going to keep looking at this kind of stuff and say, people know about this, but they're still not, still not able to beat it. And so we'll talk more about this later. Um, I just think it's this is certainly a lot of Phoenix decks. Although we're looking at the top eight numbers, what do you make of the fact that is it Phoenix only won two tournaments? I don't care about winning. I mean, I think that the, the top eight is the goal, right? And then once you hit the top eight, all bets are off, more or less. You know, you are going to be up against other strong players, playing strong decks. They might be running Is It Phoenix themselves, so they're going to maybe knock each other out, and then they get to the semis or something like that. So I don't put stock in who won these events. Um, I think that the top eight, and preferably for me, even the top 16 or 32 would be great data to have. But when we just have the top eight to look at, I think that if you made the top eight, you're playing a strong deck that is going to be able to win a large local event. And it just comes out in the wash what did or did not win at the top eight, I think. Some other stuff that I noticed running down kind of this list of uh, decks that appeared in the top eights, I think there's not much else that's weird. It's like a good slice of an LGS modern metagame, I think. You know, the most powerful deck in Is It Phoenix is showing up a ton more, I think. But you're going to see decks like Tron, Dredge, Blue-White Control, Affinity, Titan Shift, 
you're going to see Martyr Proc, you're going to see Burn, Jund, Infect, Bogles, all those decks you're going to see at any event at your LGS from week to week. Some surprises to me, though, are the slight reemergence of traditional affinity. You know, showing it still has some game. It's even represented more than Scales was. People love those robots. Ad Nauseam, I think, is probably the best pure combo deck in the format right now. It's just ignoring what other people are doing and just going off like, you know, cool burb. Uh, I'm just going to win. Yeah, Ad Nauseam, I think, is actually very well positioned against Phoenix. Uh, that might be one of the reasons why we saw the deck do well this weekend and it's something that i've struggled against as a is it phoenix player because you're trying to swing and then they just will do the thing where they angel's grace you can't do anything and they win on the spot exactly and interacting with them is hard in a deck that doesn't have a ton of interaction to begin with i think it's interesting that living end decks are showing up as well for representing some combo we had the this kiki vengeance deck that we'll talk about later and a blue red as foretold electro dominance deck that we'll talk about as well and there's still this really surprising lack of burn to me you know people thought this deck was back in a big way we had a whole episode about burn just a few ago and with the printings of skewer the critics and light up the stage people thought this was going to be a major player in modern again and over this weekend and over the gp it was kind of relegated to tier two tier three it did appear twice in across top eights, which is pretty low for burn. Everyone loves burn. Like there's so many burn players at these kind of regionals. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, it is funny that Mono Green Tron appeared in five top eights because burn is a pretty good matchup against Tron. I think it's it a is. reasonable matchup against Phoenix. But you know, sometimes the dice don't fall the way you want them to. I don't know. We, I mean, we said that last week too, though. So maybe this is just a trend. So we'll see um, as the next... We, we, we have five GPs coming up, so if we see Burn continue to not really show, then we'll know more. I think we'll have a larger sample size. All right, do you want to look at some of the individual tournaments and decks or strategies that stood out to us? Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, let's start with Chicago, because I got to play in that one. Yeah, do it, man. What do you see in Chicago? So I was playing Mono Red Phoenix, which is kind of somewhere between Burn and Is It Phoenix... And uh, I beat Is It Phoenix in round one. Chicago was also a very big tournament. There were six, 360 of us. Holy moly. A lot of people showed up because Minneapolis was canceled. So the local tournament organizer expanded the tournament and made it way bigger to accommodate a lot of people traveling down from Minnesota or you know Wisconsin and Iowa and wherever. The winner of that tournament is my spirit animal. Jesse Mills took down SCG Regional Chicago with Jeskai Tempo Deck. And even though it's listed as Jeskai Control on SCG, I've played something similar to this. And it's a bit more aggressive than your traditional Jeskai Control list. He shows up in his DeLorean with his license plate reading out of time with his Jeskai Tempo Deck. Part of me wonders whether this deck has changed at all in the last three years because the newest card on here is Settle the Wreckage. Um, after that, it's like Spire Bluff Canal. And then the rest of it is like the Jeskai list we saw three or four years ago. We got three main deck, Geist of St. Traft, four Spell Queller, four Snapcaster. And even the spell package has a lot of consistency with four Bolt, four Helix, four Path. You're only... True Cantrip is Serum Visions, which he had four of. Three Cryptic Command. Uh, he also had three Celestial Colonnades in his land base, maybe for a plan C if, in case 
your geists or spell quellers or even snapcasters aren't doing the the work to beat down your opponent. But I was really impressed with this. And, and to me, this kind of shows one of the things that makes modern so appealing to people is if you're really great at a deck, you can play it for three years and you might still see success in a big tournament with it. Exactly. You never know what you're going to see. I liked that classic affinity took second and third. I mean, one was running a couple of baby car and the other one is running a couple of experimental frenzy. Um, you know, we talked about F bots the other week. Is that an up and comer people aren't paying attention to? I know that Andrew Ellen Bogan, the recent PT winner seems to think that experimental frenzy affinity is a super powerful player. I suspect we're going to start seeing it more. What is this cruel control deck stand in seventh? Another control deck that you're going to freak out about. All right, so this is a Grixis control list by Philip Silverman. Pretty weird. It has a lot of the usual control Grixis cards, but it's also running two main deck Cruel Ultimatum, which is two for seven mana sorcery. Target opponent <laughs> sacrifices a creature, discards three cards, loses five life. You return a creature from your graveyard to your hand, draw three cards, gain five life. And I'm surprised this card is good, man. Like, to be honest. I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's good. It certainly puts you pretty far ahead. And I think the concept is, is that you got a snapcaster back to do it again, but I don't play these kind of decks. So I could be totally wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a Grixis control deck. People who know how to pilot control decks in a room full of people that might not be as good as them. Uh, they might, you know, they come out ahead typically. And so I think that this is a pretty rad strategy. I've definitely seen people play these decks. And if you want to have fun playing Grixis control, sleeve this thing up. Yeah, one of the things that stands out to me about this deck is a lot of the control pieces are really cheap, even though it doesn't have a ton of card draw. The only true cantrip are two opt. Um, it also has two remand to maybe get through the deck. Usually I think in the control package with a bunch of one and two ofs, you would need more cantrips to cycle through them. But I'm guessing maybe the four snapcaster makes it easier to double up on some of those early game interactions. Yeah, you got me, man. I mean, you could tell me that there were four peaks in this deck, and I'd believe you, because I don't know how people build these things. But it's it's interesting. I think it's cool. I think Crew Ultimatum is a hilarious uh, finishing spell for a Grixis control deck, so more power to them. Yeah, congratulations, Philip Silberman. I'm going to talk about Baltimore really fast. Uh, the winner, Rich Herbert, he had two main deck Thrag Tusk in his green Tron deck, so he shaved a Ballista and a Worldbreaker. Um, I mean, Worldbreaker has been doing some work against the arc-like Phoenix strategies because it has reach and it also exiles something upon entering the battlefield. But perhaps the body, the life gain, the leaving the body behind after a thing in the ice flip is worth including some Thrag Tusks main. The second place finisher was playing Amulet Titan and they had a Sakama Primal Calamity in their main, which is just amazing. Uh, the classic grixis delver deck showed up in eighth place so you know four delver of secrets can still close out a game apparently and then going into durham which possibly had the most recognizable names in the top eight and at seg grinders dylan donegan who won ross miriam placed fifth michael braverman finished sixth, and they were all on is it phoenix but the second place deck was Blue White Spirits with three main deck Deputy of Detention. And this card's a real deal, everybody. It keeps showing up. And it's definitely a powerful spell to be running in a, a Blue White, you know, Blue White Spirits, Bant Spirits, and sometimes even in humans. The three Oriok Champion 
was a really smart inclusion in the sideboard, and I saw it in many decks this weekend that could run it. It's really hard for Dredge to deal with. And three Chalice in this side, Stan, that seems really novel to me. I haven't really ever seen Blue-White Spirits running Chalice of the Void. I guess it makes sense because they don't have the Noble Hierarch, so they don't have to worry about curbing their own one drops and chalice on one seems pretty great in the format right now especially if you're looking at a bunch of is it phoenix players i mean i guess they lose path and their aether vial but if you're going to that strategy you likely just hope to maybe get a vial in your hand on one and then you can play your chalice later and then you probably remove your paths and then you can rely on your deputy of detention to remove hard to remove threats that might get down so i think it's cool i don't know if that's going to be the new norm but it's uh it's an interesting thing that i've never seen in a spirits deck and maybe it was just a meta play because they knew they were going to deal with a bunch of phoenix players as there were three of them in the top eight do you want to hit columbus dan another wild deck for you to talk about here yeah oh man kiki vengeance in sixth place This is basically a wild reimagining of two or three different combo strategies all boiled into one wild Grixis package. It looks to me like the basic plan is to throw some game-ending creatures into the yard using either Baby Jace, Is It Charm, or Faithless Looting, and then you use the Electrodominance Living End combo to get them all back and win on the spot. Uh, Hmm. One way to win on the spot is Kiki Exarch. You can also make massive swings with Gristlebrand in addition to using Gristlebrand's draw card ability to set up a win on the next turn, potentially. Yeah, yeah. It didn't look like there was a Gristlebrand combo in this version. It seemed to be shaving that for more control and and card draw and plan Bs and plan Cs. What an interesting deck. Uh, You can also cheat Living End off of As as Foretold. Yeah, and so this this, this guy, Tom Medvek, I feel like I've heard of him. Yeah, so he's been doing, um, he's been playing for years and he's got a number of SCG Modern top eights and top 16 finishes under his belt, basically dating back to at least as far back as 2015. So he's a pretty experienced player, uh, probably a good deck builder and another example of someone who saw an opportunity to attack the metagame and maybe surprise a bunch of opponents. Uh, it might be too soon to say whether this exact list is a real archetype that's here to stay, but if you can catch your opponents by surprise with good cards and combos they win on the spot, maybe that's a good strategy for wherever you're playing too. Yeah, I think weird combos that people aren't expecting and don't really even know what's in your deck to stop, to like, what do I thought sees here? That's going to give you a lot of value if you're bringing that deck to the table. Um, I'll talk about Columbia pretty quickly. So Classic Affinity takes this thing down it's not dead yet y'all it's still here it's still fast people are going to bring affinity to these type of events because they love those robots i think that's kind of like a good subhead for a lot of these results like this deck is not dead yet don't call it a comeback i'm still going to play the same deck that i've been good with for years and i'm going to win a tournament with it because no one else is experienced as i am with my strategy yeah and third place humans shows the power of how humans can adapt really well. It has two main deck and offense of the foremost, which is a nice hedge against the Phoenix and Dread strategies that they knew they were going to see a lot of. Also running four Oriok champions in the board, as we talked about before. Uh, I think humans already has a pretty decent matchup against Dredge, but when you bring in Oriok champions, they're going to have a bad time. The As Foretold Electrodominance Living End deck takes fifth. This is a deck we've been talking about in our recent breakdowns. We've been seeing it show up. It's a cool deck. It uh, has 
powerful ways to win very quickly through electro dominance and as foretold. A classic uh, black-green Tron, which hasn't been showing up anywhere near as much as it used to, takes 7th place. And so this is essentially the same main deck as Green Tron, but it splashes black for some sideboard fatal pushes, collective brutalities against burn strategies and other uh, instant and sorcery type decks that it wants to get cards out of the other person's hand. And it runs a two of the a show favorite card, Ravenous Trap, as well, which is smart. They don't even need to be able to cast it for black in this deck but i guess they can if they want to you want to move into orlando do it my friend all right so next i want to look at orlando really quick because mono white martyr proc took this one every dog has its day if you're not familiar with this strategy it essentially relies on a very powerful card called martyr of sands to gain a ton of life which then synergizes with sarah ascendant to become a huge cheap flyer is it a two drop? It's a one drop. Don't sleep. They're both they're both one drops. So that's why Ranger of Eos is also so good in this strategy, because it tutors up two one mana cards in out of your deck when it hits the battlefield. So even if you've already played a Martyr of Sands or a, a Sarah Ascendant, um, and they spend the removal on that, then you get to your Ranger of Eos, you drop your Ranger of Eos on turn four, then you tutor up more copies of you know, if you need a Martyr, if you need a Sarah, to then just refill the battlefield. And it also has a bunch of removal and sweepers to clean things up if it falls behind, which it then can pretty easily rebuild from through the power of cards like Ranger of Eos and that bird whose name is escaping me, that Squadron Hawk, where it gets more Squadron Hawks out of the deck. So you can pretty quickly get back on the battlefield and finish your opponent off after a Wrath. Yeah, I remember when Martyr Proc first came back just out of nowhere, maybe three or four months ago. Maybe it was a little more than that. And Zach has been saying, our our co-host Zach has been saying a lot that this deck is massively underplayed, in part because the meta is so fast. And by forcing people to slow down via the Martyr Proc's life gain ability, as well as having main deck exile removal, really lines up well with the format. You know, life gain, when it's as good as Martyr of Sands is... It's essentially a form of card advantage against certain strategies. When they're just trying to beat you down, if you're able to cost them two cards just from a Martyr of Sands and or more, then you're doing a lot of work with that card. You know, life gain typically sucks, but when it synergizes with the rest of the strategy like this, it's much smarter than like running a healing salve. Yeah, so SCG Orlando also had two copies of Colorless Eldrazi in the top eight. A deck that keeps showing up. We've mentioned it a few times on the show. And Shane, you were watching Todd Anderson play it today on SCG Verse Series. Yeah, uh, he and Ross Miriam have been doing this series on SCG Twitch streams where they test decks against one another. Today they were testing the new London Mulligan rule, which is a potential boon to both uh, the Eldrazi deck and Dredge, which Ross was playing. So I think this is an up-and-comer. I mean, we've we've been talking about it for a few weeks. We keep seeing it, it pop up. I certainly don't have any idea how to play against it yet. So it's certainly a strategy that we see win. I think most people are going to come at it not really knowing what their game plan is against it. And as we talk about a lot, uh, understanding your role against an opponent is very powerful. And so if you're coming in halfway clueless, you're going to lose some equity against it. I'll move on really quick to the Boston Regional 
just to mention, not a ton of spice in this one. A lot of meta mainstays. Uh, Band Spirits took down that event. Perfectly crimulent deck if you're good with it. I don't think you should be too scared of Thing in the Ice just yet. Yeah, Boston was definitely the most normal top eight we had. Because in Atlanta, we saw some weird old classics show up. We saw Infect come out of the blue to take fifth. And then we saw Bogles take sixth. So those you know strategies that have been around for quite some time can still take a top eight. Well, you know, Shane, Infect runs blue. It's a blue-green deck, so it's not fully out of the blue just yet. I like that, Stan. That's very good. <laughs> and then uh, in Dallas, we saw Tom the Boss Ross take fourth place with uh, Black-Green Rock, the only good mid-range deck right now, I think. And he's focusing a lot on Tireless Tracker here rather than Dark Confidant. I think he had one Dark Confidant and four trackers to really grind that value and battlefield power out. And then we also saw another mono-white martyr deck here in sixth. Yeah, Knoxville was also taken down by the Rock. Uh, unlike Ross's build in Dallas, this one still had a place out of Bob's. Um, Knoxville also had Merfolk in fifth place with two main deck Psionic Blast. Pretty rad. Yes, so wild. And also it had the only Abzan deck to appear in any top eight. Abzan midrange came in eighth in Knoxville. I haven't seen Abzan show up since I think we were looking at the last year, early last year, European GPs. I like the triple Gaddock Teague in the sideboard. I think that's potentially pretty smart against Coco decks trying to grind some value out against you. And also, of course, Tron decks, which absolutely demolish Abzan strategies because they're so slow. Amulet Titan, for that matter. Yeah, pretty impressive. I like it. So we're not going to do a complete list and breakdown, but with the exception of Dallas, every one of these top eights had at least one unique deck that didn't appear in any other top eight. So still a ton of diversity in the format and people showing up with their friend strategies. Yeah, I mean, by and large, I think besides the popularity and power of Phoenix, I think everything looks great for Modern. The problem is, is you can't really ignore the presence of Phoenix. You can't just say, yeah, besides the deck that was 22% of the top eight metagame, everything was peachy, because that's a huge player in the metagame. So, you know, we've talked so much about Phoenix. People have been talking a ton about Phoenix for uh, the ban conversation, the ban and restricted list that just came and went without any changes. We'll touch on that in the, the wind down. But... I mean, it remains to be seen. I think it's, I think it's a, it's a great little cross section here. It shows us what modern is, which is, is it Phoenix and the rest? People can bring whatever they want as long as they know it well and enjoy playing it and have a fighting chance at a local tournament for sure. My feeling in general is that I agree with you. Is it Phoenix is everywhere. There's no denying that the data is clear. Personally, and this is based on my own experience playing with the deck. I feel like I can't win with it to save my life. It's why I didn't play it in regionals myself and why I've been able to beat it with some consistency, except in the mirror match. I think it's very beatable. You just have to know how to line your threats up right. Maybe you have to get lucky and maybe you have to go faster. Is the deck too strong for modern? I don't think so. Is the deck potentially going to get hit by a banhammer because faithless looting is so good that you know remains to be seen but we know faithless looting is a card that enables some really degenerate strategies and some really broken plays probably because it has flashback i wouldn't be scared about going to your lgs without is it phoenix right now 
Um, I'm certainly not. I may or may not play it to get better with it myself, but if this isn't your type of deck, it's still a, there's still a ton of value in practicing what you're good at, maybe trying new decks that you're interested in, and then letting the format shake itself out. Because at the end of the day, Wizards of the Coast and R&D isn't going to let one deck take over the format forever. Yeah. And in my experience, it's still not as crazy and pervasive as Eldrazi Winter was. And although I wasn't around for Splinter Twin, it doesn't seem as polarizing as that was either. Because Splinter Twin, you either had to play it or you just lived in constant fear of tapping out, is my essential understanding of that era. I mean, Stan, it's, I mean, Eldrazi Winter, the Eldrazi deck was, was so clearly overpowered that it was, you know, it was deserving of every ban that it got, right? But we still are in a world where, if 20% of a competitive metagame, even like the regional metagame, is going to be Phoenix, then people are going to have complaints. So I think that's, you know, like I said before, I think it's concerning. I think that people may need to adjust the decks they're bringing to the tournament. But like you said, I, you know, you're not always going to see it at your LGS. I was just at like a 20 person LGS event on Friday for Friday Night Magic. Not a single person was on Is It Phoenix. You know what I mean? There were so many people on their own brews, on their pet decks, uh, you know, on other powerful decks, but not Phoenix. So you're not always going to see it. So, you know, there's the local metagame and then there's the, you know, the, the competitive metagame. And so I think having realistic expectations of what you're going to see where is a good thing. And like I said, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, banning stuff in the wind down when we just kind of go back and forth about it. I will add one last thing. And because it's clear that Is It Phoenix is doing great, just looking at the data from the GP regionals weekend, if you can play this deck, you should probably give it a shot. And there's likely worse ways to spend your time than practicing with arguably the best deck in the format, if not just one of the best decks in the format. You may or may not like mm-hmm. it. I don't know if I even like it, and I love casting Serum Visions, Ops, and Lightning Bolts, but it's definitely one worth trying, because if you can make it work, then maybe you'll get some success in your store. Cool. Stan, uh, good breakdown of this SEG Regionals. I was hoping for a little bit more craziness. I think a couple of Martyr Procs is all the craziness we're going to get, but you know it's cool. I think it gives people a good idea of what they're going to face and what's uh, winning right now, so thanks for going through that with me. Yeah, and a lot of our conversation was based on this spreadsheet that we had built out as a dive down team that looks at all of the decks and also breaks out some of the trends. And we're going to share that spreadsheet with our listeners. We'll have a link in our show notes and on our Reddit post as well when we are live. Sweet. Good work. All right, Shane, that was great. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to dive down into hardened scales. We've wanted to talk about this deck being a powerful strategy in Modern for weeks. It took two of the top eight slots at GPLA. It's been continually lurking in the Tier 1, Tier 2 range for quite a while. But it's also a very challenging deck to play and understand. So we thought one great way to really inform our listeners is to have a guest on the show with a lot more experience with this deck than any of us have. And that is none other than GP Los Angeles runner-up Gall Schlesinger. He was kind enough to give us his time the other night, and Shane and Zach had a great conversation. Stay with us.
First off, dude, thanks for coming on to our podcast for our first interview, and congratulations on your second place finish at Grand Prix Los Angeles. And we really wanted to get you on our podcast to talk about your experiences playing uh, Hardened Scales, you know, help us and help our listeners to better understa- understand the deck and how it's trying to operate and potentially how to try to beat it. I know you're not going to want to share those secrets, but you're going <laughs> to have to. So yeah, anything that you want to say before we start off diving into the questions, man? Like, what are you into right now? Well, right now I've been doing like a lot of streaming and a lot of, uh, I've actually been like started doing day trading of stocks recently. I was actually for a while working just like a bunch of minimum wage jobs while in college, just like working at McDonald's, Dairy Queen, all that stuff. But then I was just like, okay, over the summer I uh, set out, I was like, okay, I'm going to make a lot of money to give myself some time during the school year, try and stream and not work. And then I streamed all over the summer. Yeah, man. And went up from like zero viewers, like most of the streams, up to around like twenty to thirty viewers. Oh, hey, sweet! And then slowly started continuing to grow the stream. Like uh, right before this podcast, I had a stream where it ended with around seventy viewers near the end. Yeah, man. I mean, going into the GP finals certainly helps with some name recognition, right? Yeah, it definitely does. And if I can make that like either some sort of uh, like income or career, even that would be great. Because right now I'm just going to college and don't really have necessarily a plan for what my job would be after that. And I've got like a year to two to figure that out. So yeah, man, live the dream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pro, pro streamer is definitely within reach at this point. Yeah, for sure. You know, diving in a little bit. So you know, we're a modern focused podcast. We do everything just about modern. So would you say modern's your favorite way to play Magic? Or are you like secretly a standard fan or like a Canadian Highlander fan or something like that? Modern is probably my favorite format to play. Like I all like especially on Magic Online, I have like nearly all the cards, so I can just switch around from like oh, dang. different decks if I like playing them. But I do also like playing other formats. Like I play a lot of Legacy and Vintage online right now. Mm. And like for all the year end Magic Online championship things, I also have to play like Popper for one of the formats, which I'm not that big of a fan of, but I'm slowly <laughs> coming around to it. But yeah, so I like playing a bunch of different things. No, it's awesome. And so, you know, you're playing Hardened Scales now, it looks like, but what kind of modern decks have you been into over the past few years? Like I saw a few years ago, you were like a Merfolk player, but you've apparently kind of traded in the fish for the robots at this point. Do you like kind of favor a particular play style or do you just play whatever is is winning or whatever you like? Um, I do slightly like lean towards aggressive play styles. The first modern deck I actually ever built was Affinity because it didn't use any of the fetch lands or oh, anything, sure. and I had like a couple yeah. box opals. So, yeah, they weren't a hundred dollars at that point. Yeah, they were like maybe thirty bucks or something. It was really nice. And then, actually, the next deck I built was Merfolk after that, and I had a lot of fun playing that, and just like kept winning at my local shop. Did well at like PPDQs during the season and stuff, and I was like, okay. I'll go take this to a GP, and it was my first ever GP in GP LA in 2016. Okay. I went 9-0 day one. Ooh. Is that with Merfolk? It was with Merfolk, yes. Merfolk actually Sweet. ended up winning that tournament, and then uh, out of another person that I knew, but I ended up going 12-3, which was still like really good. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome, man. I'd be super happy to get that. And what were you like? You were like 17 at the time or something? I think I was 16 at the time, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> High school. Teen Wounded King. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, man. So you're playing Hardened Scales right now. Why are you playing that over the traditional Affinity build? So to say why I'm playing Hardened Scales, um, in I think it was October or November, there was GP Portland. And I wanted to, that's like a local GP to me. I live in Eugene, about an hour and a half south of Portland. Okay. I wanted to test out a deck and go like really hard in a modern deck and do spreadsheeting and a bunch of stuff on matchups, try to figure out what to play. 
And I was mm-hmm. playing Hollow One for a bit before then, and was just, but I was going like fifteen and no one day, and then like one and ten the next day. Yeah, very swingy, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I, I played a little bit of of the Hollow One deck, and I feel the exact same way. Yeah. So, and then I I played a lot of regular Affinity in the past, and regular Affinity didn't feel all that great. I don't think Experimental Frenzy had come out, or maybe it was very new and wasn't put into the deck. So I tried out Hardened Scales, and like I like four one or five would like a couple leagues in a row. I was like, okay, I'm gonna try to do this. Had like sixty yeah. percent win rate over two hundred matches. Yeah, that's where you want to be. Yeah, I was like, okay, this seems pretty good. I played it in GP Portland. And I went 11-4, which I was pretty happy with. I would have liked a little bit better. When was GP Portland? Um, it was, I think it was November 14th, something like that. Well, so it was Hardened Scales still somewhat new then? Was it kind of like a fresh face or had it been kind of established at that point? I would say it was established like within like maybe two months before then, but it was still like relatively new. People didn't necessarily know how to play against it fully. Sure. But that helps. Then I kind of took a step back from modern for a little bit. At that point, I was playing a lot of legacy and vintage and playing standard for the pro tour that I had coming up in Cleveland the week beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do too well in Cleveland. I went four and six, but still made a day two. I didn't realize there was a modern PTQ on Saturday of that event. And my friend who I was with happened to have hardened scales on him. I was like, okay, I know how to play this deck. I'll jam it in the PTQ. The deck chose you. Yeah. I lost my winning in for top eight, but I felt like I was just like playing miles ahead of everyone else. And the deck was just like absolutely busted. Sure. And then the next week, I actually forgot that GPLA was the next week. And my, me and my friend booked <laughs> it and he like sent me a message on like Tuesday. And he's like, so I'll like come pick you up on Friday and we can like go to the GP. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like GPLA. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> sure. So, why not? I ran through some leagues. I went three two, three two, one three, and one three before the uh, the GP. So not too not too promising. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is the deck we have. I switched some sideboards and some main deck cards up, then went to the GP, and then just like start out eight zero day one, lost my final round in a pretty close one, and then just like steamrolled my way basically to the top eight, only losing one more round on day two. That's a great run, man. Congratulations. We'll definitely talk a little bit more about your uh, the GP experience later for sure. Yeah, I have a question about Hardened Scales itself. Oh, yeah. uh, do you think this deck is more playable? That's a better card because there's less enchantment hate in sideboards, or are you not really concerned with Hardened Scales getting removed when it's in play after you get a little use out of it? Um, a lot of the times, people don't really have a way to deal with the card Hardened Scales, right? But it's also the fact that like it also the deck still has a bunch of synergy, like Affinity does with like Arcbound Ravager and like a bunch of counters moving in, yeah. changing things. But it's just not as like susceptible to a card like. You don't just stone die to Stony Silence. Right, exactly. Even if they do have Stony Silence or like rest in peace for all the modular things, uh, you get four Nature's Claims on the sideboard and they're very easily castable. Whereas in regular Affinity, you really needed like one of your four, usually had four to five four color lands that you could play. Whereas sure, yeah. Spring Leaf Drum or something. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Whereas in like uh, this deck, you have like six to seven forests, a Pendle Haven, and some other random things that can cast a Nature's Claim fairly consistently. Yeah, I was watching you. I was watching one of your streams recently, and I saw there was like you're gonna have to remind me, Gall. It's uh, the land that graphs. Uh, land of War Reborn. <laughs> yeah, is that a typical inclusion, or is that kind of some tech you're trying you're testing? It was relatively new tech that came out like a month or two ago. That people were testing like one. I saw like one, two, or even three sometimes in some deck lists. I was running one for a long time, and then I finally moved up to two, thinking it was just like 
very, very good every single time I drew it. Yes, that's a good way to test. So when you were making your deck selection for the GP, was there anything else you were on the fence about playing? Or did you think that Hardened Scale was, was just the most powerful thing you could be doing right now? Uh, there were two other decks I thought about playing, but I had a couple problems with them. One, uh, well, the two decks were were the were prison deck, like the mono blue splash, nice. like yeah, black yeah. or red prison deck, and mono red phoenix. But one, I had played the were prison deck maybe like once or twice a couple months ago, and I felt like I needed a lot more practice it to be able to play well with it. Yeah, and mono red phoenix, I had just not played at all. And the fact I needed to be able to find these cards because I didn't actually own the cards for either of the deck. So I was just like, okay, rather than trying to like ask a bunch of people to figure to like get a deck constructed, I have I own the Hardened Scales deck. I've done well with it. I know how to play it. Let's just play this deck. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely gonna help you out knowing how to play the deck and knowing how to play against whatever is gonna come across your way in a modern, you know, a big modern tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I have a question about the the main 60 for uh, scales. How set is it? Like how much room is there to tinker with? How many slots are there? Or is it you have five cards in every build? Or is it some, you know, because I see there's an evolutionary leap in yours. And that uh, struck me as particularly interesting. I would say that there's probably around five-ish slots that are like flexible. There's like somewhere between one to three animation modules, somewhere between three and four welding jars. Like, sometimes people play Throne of Guests, sometimes they don't. Sometimes people play Evolutionary Leap, sometimes they don't. Some people even play, instead of Steel Overseer, they play um, Metallic Mimic, which mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of personally, but I can see the reason to play it. Some people cut Steel Overseers and play some Spell Skites. Some people play... Cutting Steel Overseer seems crazy yeah, I understand that. The reasoning that people have told me is that if the it's mainly because of Gutshot being played in like Blue Red Phoenix and Mono Red Phoenix. They just like okay, fair. they just think it's going to die too much, and they just want to make sure that they like they have a card that like instantly does something rather than like having to take a turn or two to get going. Like you have to untap with it to get the value. Yeah, and then uh, so I've seen people play a Singleton Street Wraith, which I have no idea why you would do it, but people fiboed with that. Just to cut the size of the deck down or something? Yeah, who who knows, to be honest. Um, <laughs> some people play a Mishra's Bobble as just like a way to get Mox Opal online earlier. Oh, that's but interesting. I, I would rather just play a, um, a Welding Jar instead of the Mishra's Bobble to play another zero drop. Yeah, there's like probably around five to six cards that like widely vary between different deck lists. But the other like 50 to 55 are like pretty set in. Like some people play a Phyrexia's Core. Some people play a Pendlehaven. Some people like mess around with the mana base as well. Do you think that there are more powerful considerations than others, like in a vacuum? Or do you think that it depends on the metagame you're facing? I would say it definitely depends on the metagame. Like, if you think it's a more grindy metagame, cards like Throne of Geth and Evolutionary Leap get a lot more value out of them. But if you think, like, everyone's playing Burn, then those cards just don't have enough time to get going. I would say, is um, Aethergrid a card you ever consider for a deck like this? Or is, is that, like, what meta would you see a card like that doing well in? Uh, are you talking about gear per Aethergrid? Yes, I am. Um, I, I've i seen people play the Red Splash in the deck. It's mainly for like that and like sometimes Galvanic Blast and some other things. But I just think it's better to stay with just Mono Green. Just be like as consistent as possible. Don't like you also got to play these utility lands that get a lot better like Blink Moth Nexus and Pendlehaven and Phyrexia's Core and Lana Reborn where... So in these other deck lists, you have to play like Yavamaya Coast, Botanical Sanctum, or like sure. Grove of the Burn Willows and things just to make your your splash work and you don't get as much utility out of your lands. Yeah, that makes sense. 
so Gall, with the GP that just happened, you know, people again after a big event, they start talking about the state of modern, right? Especially when you have people like LSV and Huey talking about modern. So what's your opinion on the current state of things? Do you think things are just fine? Do you think things are too linear? Do you think there's overpowered cards or decks? Um, I think most likely the card Faithless Suiting is overpowered. Like, it's enabling a little bit too many things, like Dredge, Phoenix, just like... It also just happens to be an insane, like, value card in certain decks, which is just like, it shouldn't be a card that's like... that. It, it says draw two, discard two, and you have to use this card to do it. It shouldn't be a value card somehow. It should be like a very degenerate card that's like, and it has flashback for some reason. It's just like, like right, yeah. more things. Yeah, in our last episode, we were talking about how the flashback is one of the big things that makes it feel a little bit too powerful, right? Like you, you, you get the front half and then you get like the back half. It does the same thing, but having it able to cast again for value seems to add so much. Yeah, I agree. But like, I think a card like Ancient Stirrings, which like people also like uh, equate it to, which is obviously still very good. I'm not sure if that necessarily needs a ban. It's possible like the cards, like the decks that it's in, like Tron, I mean, Tron is good, but I don't think it's like ban worthy. And I don't think Ancient Stirrings puts it over the top. No. And same with my deck. I don't think like Ancient Stirrings, it's obviously good in the deck, but it's not like anything particularly busted. It's like more like not Mox Opal as much in my deck as it is in like traditional affinity, but like Mox Opal has enabled a lot of decks that have been banned recently or people have talked about it being banned. Yeah, Zach has been on a warpath against Mox Opal for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's very good. It's yeah, we, we don't need to get into that right now with the dude who did very good with the Mox Opal deck though. <laughs> um, do you think, Gall, that if it was just Dredge, that Faithless Suiting would feel somewhat fair or like, you know, it was in Mardu Pyromancer or something like that as a value card. Do you think it's the existence of Phoenix decks that seem to push Faithless Looting over the edge? Or do you think Faithless Looting by itself is was already too much? I think Faithless Looting just over time, it just like keeps getting better. There's going to be things to do with it. Like Mardu Pyromancer almost already felt like it, it made it ban worthy. Like, like it's, it, I don't think it's ban worthy on the sense that like if you're doing a degenerate thing like discarding something like there's cards like Cathartic Union and other things that allow you to discard, but like sure. when you're getting value out of it, like out of something that theoretically should give you card disadvantage, it then starts becoming a problem when you're doing like when you're dredging Stinkweed Dip as well as like discarding Phoenixes to get like free cards out of your yard. Yeah, I think in in a way it's comparable to Birthing Pod where it's not it limits the design space for further graveyard cards because is it didn't plan to break faithless looting like this, but every time they design a graveyard matters thing or mechanic, they have to take into account faithless looting in modern. And that's just a lot. Yeah. And it's like, like if there's a deck like Grixis death shadow, that it will also pay looting, which doesn't seem like it should be a faithless looting deck. At exactly. All. Yeah. Like it seems like something's probably wrong with the card. No, definitely. Yeah. Like that's something that we, you know, we try to pay attention to when, even subtle shifts are happening. Like when Grixis Death Shadow is running like a one or two or three of, of a Faithless Suiting, it's just like, yeah, like you said, it's just straight value mm-hmm. sometimes. And that when a card is that ubiquitous, it becomes more problematic. Yeah. So Faithless Looting aside, are you happy with Modern? Um, I, w- I feel like it's in a good place, but it always feels like something's slightly off. Like a lot of the decks I'm not like particularly happy to play against. Like Blue Red Phoenix, I'm not whenever... Whatever deck I'm playing, I'm basically not happy to play against it. 
Like the in- sure the ensnaring bridge decks are not very fun to play against either. Regardless, if you have a good, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I run one of those. Yeah, <laughs> but like a lot of the other decks are like fun to play against. Like Grixis Death Shadow usually is like close. Whatever deck you're playing against, like it feels like you have game. There's a lot of mid range decks. Like the Rock is doing fine. Like there's some combo decks. There's some aggro. Like there's a lot of different representations in modern that are all like not doing things too degenerate that they're like hard to interact with. Except for like Phoenix is kind of hard because it attacks you on so many different angles like yes crackling drake and like but if you're playing mono red fiend it's just like a burn plan and things like that so one thing i like to talk a lot about on the pod is like what decks are being underplayed right now based on their power level what is like the one or two decks you think aren't being played enough right now for their power level well i would have said dredge about a month ago but that (laughs) that changed uh, certainly did. I was also going to say Four Color Prison about a week ago, but then people seem to have been picking up as well. Like, a lot of the decks that I felt were very under underrepresented compared to the power level have recently, like, uh, came up. But I guess the one deck I would say now is probably Black Red Hollow One. I feel like that deck's still very powerful, along with, like, mm-hmm. Storm. Those are the two decks that I feel like are unrepresented that used to be represented that are still very, very powerful. Yeah, I think those are good picks. I know that a lot of the Storm players at my local game store moved over to Phoenix when it started coming out because they had a lot of the cards. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder if there's just been a shift of blue-red players moving into a similar deck. Yeah, that's definitely possible. But like a lot of the decks that I played that were underplayed, like I play a lot of Ad Nauseam, but now that's like starting to come up. Certainly is. Yeah, so like I was pioneering that for like three months, and then like a couple of the Magic Online players saw me playing it on stream, and they were just like started picking it up and doing well with it as well. Man, they're stealing your ideas? These jerks. <laughs> you got to have an off an off stream account where people can't watch you. Yeah. Yeah. Anosium's definitely on the rise. I was like at a 200 person tournament a month ago and there were three people on Anosium out of 200 and it was like the talk of the room. Like there are three people here and they're all playing Anosium. <laughs> yeah. Like it has a good Phoenix matchup, so people will just play it. Yeah, why not, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at this at this point when it's 16% of the room, you know what I mean? It's that's what you got to do. Yeah, for sure. So, Gall, I think something that would help both us and our listeners out is learning a little bit more about your tournament prep for GPLA. How would you describe it? Like, do you just jam as many games as possible? Do you look at the meta game and try to make some decisions based on that? Like, what do you do personally for your tournament prep? Well, GPLA was actually one of the few tournaments that I had the least amount of prep for because I had the Pro Tour the week beforehand and just, like, didn't have much time to play Modern. But if I were to say for tournament prep what I did for GP Portland, which I put a lot of work into, I made a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. of my deck. I went like, okay, I'm going to list all the matchups that I've played against. I'm going to say, like, was I on the play? Was I on the draw? Well, when I'm playing on Magic Online, I also put the person's name. I say, like, okay, was there anything interesting that happened in this game? Like, what, yeah. if it was, yeah. like, out of the ordinary, what happened? Like, was their deck list weird? Was my deck weird? If I made any change to my sideboard, I would go like, okay, here's the, here's where I played with this sideboard. Here's where I played with this sideboard. What event did I play in with these results? And I would track all that and that was usually my big thing of just like tracking results looking at all the matchups go like okay is this matchup good is this matchup good what do i expect at the tournament change my sideboard based on all the data i have it's like because wizards doesn't give us all the data anymore yeah like having your own data set gives you opportunity to like figure out what the metagame is and like use that to your advantage that not everybody else necessarily has yeah, man, you're, you're speaking to my passions here of just, you know, getting the most data possible and learning from it. Mm-hmm. Um, what of the data you were collecting 
do you think had the biggest impact? Like if you were, if you were thinking about, you know, if anything weird happened, you know, what did they sideboard against me? Like, what do you think you learned the most from in your data collection and analysis? I think the biggest thing I gained was the matchups where I had like 10 plus games in and I was just like, okay, where it's like, what are my good matchups and what are my bad matchups? Just like figuring that out first off with the deck and then going like, okay, if this is a bad matchup, how do I want to change my sideboard and how much does it affect my other matchups? Is it something that I can afford to lose this other, like, is this matchup a 90% matchup and I can afford it to go to 80% to make this 30% matchup a 50% matchup, something like that. And it made me change some sideboard cards around that I was very happy with at GP Portland. And then it also made me change some things around for GPLA as well. No, it's awesome. We'll talk about your sideboard later for sure. Definitely. So uh, on tournament prep or on pre going to a tournament, are there any goals you set for yourself or any expectations, whether that's I want to go blank and blank or I want to sideboard correctly or I want to win this matchup? Um, for GP LA, actually, I said before I went, I wanted to go 11 and 4 because I was two points away from bronze and there was an online mm-hmm. RPTQ that was going to happen this weekend. That was the last regional Pro Tour qualifier ever and I wanted to be able to play in it. So I wanted to go 11 and 4 and then be able to play in that to try and qualify for back-to-back Pro Tours. And then I just top aided and that just got me to the pro tour that way must be nice yeah man you're living the dream yep i wanted i, I wanted to win a pptq once so <laughs> I, I wanted to win the pptq once <laughs> hey i made top four at one okay sure <laughs> fine so uh real, real quick uh there was a comment you had made when you were when they were interviewing you about your deck where you said that you were running particularly hot which obviously if you're haven't lost a game you're running hot do you think that uh affinity or hardened scales is very very well positioned or you just had a a crazy hot streak with it that day um i think on day one i did get lucky in the matchups that i played and how my opponents built their decks like uh the two is it phoenix players i was playing against they both had more surgical extractions in their main deck instead of gut shots because they were gunning for the mirror sure and yeah i remember we we noticed that for sure yeah i played against shahar shenhar in, in day one and he like used a surgical extraction well, he had to use double lightning bolt to kill one of my steel overseers, and then he used a surgical extraction on it. And uh, I was just like, okay, if that was a gut shot instead of a surgical extraction, I probably would have been behind this game because I had to use my welding jar to keep my steel overseer alive. If he would have had another lightning yeah. bolt in his hand, then he probably could have done something to make it so he won that game. Right. And something like that makes it a little bit better for me. And there were also some games where my opponents made either slight misplays or I had exactly as lethal with some weird combination of like sandbagging something in my hand and, and doing things. That's what Hardened Scale is all about, right? Yeah. I definitely had a good combination of playing well, getting lucky, and like figuring out what was like the correct thing to do or my opponents messing up slightly in certain times. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that exact example, Gall, is that like a subtle change in another popular deck would allow you to have a few examples during the day where you're like, yeah, if this, if they had a different card here, like that might've been a very different outcome for me. And so I think it's a cool example for people to pay attention to, to how a choice in someone else's deck will have an impact on your experience during your tournament as well. Mm-hmm. There was like an affinity player who like messed up with a cranial plating early on where he could have applied it to a vault scourge thinking about something with like a walking ballista that could have, took it down something. And then I was able to just like get exactly lethal with a walking ballista out of nowhere that he was just like, I needed to top deck something to be able to kill him. And I top decked it and I killed him. He's just like, 
That's what it seems like always happens with the hardened skills yeah, absolutely. deck, right? It's like you're you're always top decking something that allows you to kill the other player. Yeah. Any other cool like uh memorable games or memorable turns you had at the GP? Um yeah, actually against the same affinity player early on, he Galvanic blasted a two two walking ballista I had. And on the board I had a hardened scales, a two two walking ballista, a pendlehaven, and a one one arcbound worker. So it took me a while to figure this out, but I used one counter off my walking ballista to shoot my arcbound worker. I modulated onto my walking ballista. I held priority, pendlehavened it to make it a two three, then make it a four five, <laughs> so it didn't get uh, killed by the galvanic blast. Were you just riding the high from that play all day? Because I'm just thinking about it and like seeing it happen and being like, I I have to leave the GP. I have to drop now after that happened to me. Yeah, it was actually that happened. Then the next turn, I killed him with Exaxi's damage with that same walking ballista. And I was just like, my opponent was just like, how did I lose that game? And I was like, yeah, I, I don't know either. I got, I got lucky enough to get there. Played every out. It just got outplayed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah like uh, another time in the top four of the Grand Prix. I had a board state of like double welding jar, a two two walking ballista, a hardened scales, a dark seal citadel, and a pendlehaven. And then my dredge opponent, it was Bradley Yu, he attacked all out. He was at twenty one. Had a dark blast in hand, passed the turn. I play an arcbound ravager, make my walking ballista an eleven eleven, he dark blasts it, I attack for ten, put him to eleven, wait for the upkeep, and then just shoot him for eleven. He was just like he just shook his head, it's like, what just happened to me? How did I lose this game? <laughs> That's crazy. So how would you describe the goal of the deck? What is it doing to try to win? You mentioned Walking Ballista and Arcbound Ravenger, etc. But what is the main plan of the deck? I would say there's like two different plans. Because there's one, there's a plan with Hardened Scales. There's a plan without Hardened Scales. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Speak to both of those. Because sometimes you're going to have it, sometimes you're not. With Hardened Scales, you usually play like a very weird game where you and your opponent are figuring out like what's the combo kill, what's not like... Can I get in enough chip damage to, like, go for a combo kill with backup on, like, weird Ravager lines? Or do I just, like, make huge hanger back walker and just, like, I'm going to have eight Thopters. Like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Uh, so what I want to I want to ask you, Gull, because this is something that I don't really understand right now yet, and I don't think a lot of our listeners do, is I think a lot of people live in fear of things they don't understand, right? And so until you understand how Dredge is working and what Dredge is trying to do, you're going to be like, crap. They got a bunch of stuff in the graveyard. I'm going to lose. Even if what they got in the graveyard isn't that valuable. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the most powerful thing you're doing with the hardened scales on the battlefield? Like, what is an opponent going to want to be thinking about and actually be afraid of with hardened scales out? I would say, be like, just as you're regularly scared of Arcbound Ravager, with hardened scales out, it gets much worse for you. Like, a lot of the time, the opponent, like, you, you get to do certain things where you're like, okay try to kill your hanger back walker or whatever. I'm just like, okay, I will sack a bunch of things. I'll put it all, my counters on hanger back walker. I'll get 13 thopters. Now deal with 13 thopters. You're like, they tap out for one second. You're like, okay, I'll throw everything onto a walking ballista and shoot you forever. Or you like attack with an ink moth nexus and just like a huge ravager and they have to kill the ravager or else they're dead with regular damage. They're like, okay, I'll kill you with infect damage. I have a quick uh, hypothetical for you. And, you know, you're tapped out and you have the Ravager, you have an Arcbound Worker, and you have um, a Hangerback Walker, and they mm-hmm. have a piece of removal. What should they use it on? Uh, I would not use the piece of removal. Okay, would, hold it onto it. Okay. <laughs> you have to kind of wait. It's hard because, like, if you use removal, it depends a lot on what deck you're playing. Because, like, if you have a Path to Exile, you're like, okay, I can wait to kill this Arcbound Ravager with something. 
then they're probably going to move the counters to the hanger back walker, and I can use a path on the hanger back walker. It's kind of like a a waiting game where you have to figure out like, okay, can I do I have things like lined up to deal with all these threats individually, or do I have to load up my hand and like sculpt it to figure out how to deal with everything individually, or like figure out a turn where I can end step, couple piece removal, then untap, then do some things there. Yeah, it seems very challenging from the other side of the table to know how to like actually remove something and get and still get some kind of value back. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if you target removal at Arkbond Ravager, like you said, you're just going to sacrifice some stuff and move. If you have a hardened scales out, you're going to get like eight counters all of a sudden on something, right? Yeah. So is it kind of a matter of just having a number of pieces of removal or trying to race on the other side? And we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit here, but what do you think are ways that people can think about trying to stop you, at least in game one, perhaps? Um, there are certain times where you just kind of have to, like, you have, like, maybe one or, like, a lot of decks don't really have, like, a ton of removal in them. Usually you have, like, a, yeah. like a path or, like, a bolt. You have to, like, try and race them and, like, maybe leave up your one piece of removal and go, like, okay, if they make a misstep with their Ravager and try to put it onto something, I can use my Lightning Bolt or something like that. And a lot of the time, if they have, like, Scales plus, like, Ravager and Ballista, it's kind of just, like, what are you going to do? They're, like, a com it feels like a combo deck and they comboed you. There's not much you can do about it. So in a way you're, you're sort of saying that the player, if they only have one piece of removal and, and hardened skills students thing, they sort of have to trick the hardened skills player into thinking they don't have it and hope they swing out or hope they tap out or something. Yeah. You kind of have to like represent things as well. Kind of just like, sure. Even if you don't have a lightning bolt or a path or something, just leave up that mana, make sure they don't go for a combo kill and, and make them live and make them respect you. Make them live a little bit of fear. Yeah. Just like kind of have a clock. You kind of really need a clock plus removal. That's kind of like how it feels like to play against it, or at least in game one. And then game two, you can have just like, if you have a pile of ancient grudges or a pile of stony silences and they don't have any recourse for it, then that's a way to win as well. Sure. So in game one, at least, let's say someone's playing Abrupt Decay or something like that. Like you're playing one of the few mid-range decks out there. Do you think that Hardened Scales is so important to the strategy and so powerful that they'd want to remove the hardened scales or should they remove uh, an important creature on the other side i would say probably 80 or more percent of the time to kill the hardened scales and then also animation module especially if you're playing a mid-range deck that's trying to outgrind animation module is just going to make a pile of one ones and make it so they have stuff to do with their mana nearly every single turn yeah it's also a big thing to try to take off the table okay we talked a little bit about powerful lines of play but i kind of want to think like what do you think gall are the things you want to be seeing in combination on your side of the board, right? Like is, is in in game one, especially, like what are the things that are the most explosive and the ways that you can get your fastest wins? Um, I would say against like other aggressive decks, I'd want Hardened Scales plus an Arcbound Ravager. That's usually my like go-to of like something big or Hardened Scales plus a Hanger Back Walker or Walking Ballista. Basically in the, in like the very aggressive or, ag- or combo matchups, I really need Hardened Scales to be able to like put myself over and like be able to match what they're doing. But against controlling or like mid-rangey decks, I would love to have like Hardened Scales is obviously still good. Like if you have that card, it makes your deck a lot better, but like animation module and hanger back walker, like the two big things or also throne of geth and the, uh, the uh, evolutionary leap, like both very good against like grinding out mid range and control decks. You mentioned that hardened scales is particularly good against control decks, which you're trying to race, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you know you're playing that, will will you ever try to mulligan to that? Or are there any, any cards in your deck that you are willing to put back an okay seven in hopes of getting in a six? Mostly I don't like try to mulligan aggressively for specific cards in the deck. 
especially because you have a card like Ancient Stirrings lets you see like a lot of the sure five cards is a good amount to see. Yeah, but like if you have like a hang, like most of the hands, like you just kind of have to. They're kind of just like okay, three lands, four spells. You just keep like unless it's like three arc bound workers and like a welding jar. Like that's not sure. Do anything. Right. But if you no, like, that, that's a that's bad for yeah. even like a, a limited deck. <laughs> yeah, if you're like okay, I've got like a hanger back walker, walker, an arc bound ravager, a welding jar, and like a steel overseer and like three lands. You're kind of just like on average, this is your hand. You just kind of have to keep sure. it. And if they don't interact with you, you're just going to kill them. And even if they do, you have like certain things you can do that makes it hard for them. And you have a lot of very powerful draws that make your hand a lot better. Arcbound Ravager is a very silly card. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you don't have scales out, what do you think your main lines to victory? I don't have scales out. I mean, there's still just Arcbound Ravager combo kills, but it's usually like play a slower game with either animation module, uh, Hangerback Walker, just like some infect guys or things. It's like if you don't draw hardened scales, Arcbound Ravager, uh, animation module or like evolutionary leap or anything like that, like you don't have any of your like engine pieces, which is usually like somewhere between like 12 to 13 cards in your deck. It's hard to kind of get things going because a lot of your cards are just kind of dinky without them. But like if you have at least one of those pieces, usually like threatening to do something very powerful against your opponent. Okay. So how does your game plan change, if at all, depending on the type of deck you're up against, right? Like if someone's trying to race you, if someone's trying to remove your important pieces, if someone's trying to combo you out. I know we kind of talked a little bit about the, the combo the combo matchup, but what about other types of matchups? Like how does your mindset and your game plan change? If I'm playing against like a slower deck, I'll be like more likely to try and lead out on like the Steel Overseer. Or, like, a Hangerback Walker or something that, like, generates value over turns. Like, sometimes against aggro decks, like, I just won't... I will have a Steel Overseer in my hand, and it's turn two, I'm just like, I'm not going to play this. It, it will not either survive or it won't do anything the amount of time that I need. And, like, against control decks, I'm like, okay, let's develop a Hangerback Walker. Let's develop these the Throne of Geth or the uh, Evolutionary Leap early on and just start trying to get value out of that. And then, like, if you have, like, an Evolutionary Leap and an uh, Animation Module... You just, like, get a turn through your whole deck, and you're, like, I had two animation modules out, and I played an Arcbound Worker against Blue-Eye Control after they terminus my board, and they were just, like, Cryptic Command it. They, if I played it, I would make two servos, had enough mana to activate the animation module on my uh, Arcbound Worker, and just make two more servos. So I was just, like, I would make five guys if you let it resolve. I was, like... What a wild world where Cryptic Command against a one-mana modular one... Yeah, so it's like there's a bunch of engine pieces against control that are a lot better. Like I side out actually animation module a lot against the aggressive decks because you just don't have enough time to like mess around with it. But mm-hmm. against the control decks, it's just like it, you just got to do the world with it. So maybe we talk about the sideboard a little bit right now. There were a few interesting choices that we had noticed when we were looking over and talking about it. You have two graph diggers cage in the side uh, versus a singleton, which we see sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about this card? Do you think it was really important in your day? Were you glad to see it? Um, I think it's, like, really good, especially with a card like Welding Jar in your sideboard as well. It just, like, makes it really hard to t- get off the table against, like, Dredge, against, uh, like, Phoenix or other graveyard-based decks, and even against, like, the Court of Calling Collect Company decks, it's very good against as well. So it's a card that I was just, like, when I sighted in, I was, like, always happy to see it. Yeah, I've, I think we've been talking a little bit recently about how Cage is potentially underplayed in sideboards right now. What do you think about Grafdigger's Cage? Like, why is it always in the hardened scales sideboard and not always seen in kind of every sideboard? Cause it's just an artifact anyone can cast, right? 
I would say that, like, there are certain other cards that, like, mid-range decks want, like, Nile Spellbomb that allows them to cycle through, like, in case it doesn't do anything. Where And, like, this deck, it gets synergies with Arcbound Ravager if need be. It also has a Welding Jar, which just makes it, like, nearly unkillable yeah. against the decks that want to kill it. It's just, like, something that just sticks on the table and does exactly what you want to do out of the sideboard with this deck. It's quick, it's resilient with other cards, and is also can combo with other cards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, moving on to the two surgical in the side, that's a, a very hot, hot card lately. It's been going up in price. It's in a lot of decks. Uh, how did you feel about that? Were you happy to see them? Would you wish there was something else? Did it overperform, underperform? Um, surgical extraction was actually, they used to be Tormod scripts in my sideboard. Oh, okay. I changed them to surgical extractions because I wanted a card that was better. That I could bring in against Phoenix. And I felt Tormod script wasn't good enough. And was still good in the matches where Tormod script was good, which surgical is not as good against Dredge such things, but it's definitely still very good against them. Sure. And it allowed me to take Phoenix out, as well as take out Thing in the Ice in the Phoenix matchup, which I was very, right. very much so needed to do. It was the card that I was always losing to against Blue-Red Phoenix. Yeah, that makes sense. If that, you know, a Phoenix you can probably outrace, but a Thing in the Ice flipping is pretty bad for you. Yeah. So why do you think that it's a newer inclusion in hardened scales like it seems like i hadn't seen a lot of surgicals in the sideboard and then you show up packing two of them do you think that was a a good choice do you think that people are going to be moving to that more i'm not sure if people are going to move to it necessarily on the metagame depending on what because people are also running a spell skite as their way to beat thing in the ice because it's a horror oh yeah so that's like another avenue to go i just wanted uh, uh graveyard hate pieces as well as combo hate pieces and it was also good against uh, Storm, which Tormod script wasn't always because they could just like kill it and then go off. Whereas right. if you're packing a surgical in your hand, sometimes they just like mess up and you get to get them with it. Like I, I just thought it was a card that people wouldn't necessarily respect or play around as much. It's hard to play around, yeah. As well as being very good in certain matchups. Great, thanks. Yeah, so the last card we're going to touch up on uh, from your sideboard is Karn, Sign of Urza, also known as Baby Karn. You have two. I've seen some in Infinity List. How did you like them for you and your list? I thought it was very good. I cited him twice over the weekend. One of the times in the matchups, I didn't see it. The other matchup, I saw it both in post-board games, and both of them, it was just like, made a 5-5, made a 6-6 against Jund, and it was just like, really, really good. Yeah, value. Yeah, it just like, gets a lot of value. It's very good. Like, when the game's going to be drawn out long, like, and your opponent's stocked up on like, spot removal, and you're just like, okay, Karn plus, or like, Karn minus, and they're just like, okay, kill it. It's like, okay, Karn minus again. Still have to kill the Karn, and I have these like humongous guys that you can't necessarily deal with. Right. Do you think that Karn has a, a future in modern outside of this deck, or is you think he's going to be relegated to Affinity mostly? I think he's going to be relegated to Affinity because all the modes aren't going to be necessarily relevant in the uh, in other decks. Whereas, like if you're playing a blue deck and want card advantage, you can get Jace. If you're playing a green deck, you can play cards like Tireless Tracker. You can play like the Garricks that are around in the format. Um, if you're black, you got to play Liliana and discard and these things, and you just have like better value options. Whereas in hardened scales affinity, the minus just makes like a seven seven, or in the regular affinity, it just makes like a huge guy, mm-hmm. and the plus just gets your card advantage, and it's right. just a planeswalker that's very hard to deal with. I just think it's mainly going to be relegated to the affinity decks. I would say. So some strategy talk again for the listeners, and maybe you know you don't want to tell us these secrets, but you gotta. How would you think? How would you think? <laughs> you gotta. You gotta, how would you suggest for a potential opponent to best try and attack your game plan? You know, in a post sideboard world, you know, the games two and three. What should they be thinking about, and what should they be trying to bring in and trying to do in order to disrupt your strategy 
I would say Stony Silence is just one of the best cards as it is against traditional Infinity. Um, I would say if you're also playing white, bring in Rest in Peace. If you have ways of spot removal as well, because it stops Hangerback Walker, stops Arcbound Ravager, stops all the modular and everything. And then Ancient Grudge is still very good. Like, not as good as it is against traditional Infinity, but still very, very powerful. Like, it can definitely blow me out easily. I would just say, like, regular Artifact Hate is just the way to go. It's not as necessarily as potent as it is against regular Infinity, but still, like, plenty good. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that a braid is good against you because of the two modes, or would someone be better focused on pure artifact hate? I think like a braid is still good against me, and I think you need to have like like far reaching sideboard cards like a braid. You can't necessarily just have like ancient grudge or something like that in a phoenix sideboard because there's not enough artifact decks to make it uh, worthwhile. Like you need cards that you can play against uh, burner bant spirits that can just kill a creature while also being good against artifact decks like you like in sideboards you just need far-reaching cards if you can do that sure absolutely so we've mentioned a couple of times that you've had some explosive finishes or played a creature then untapped in one uh how can people try to play around this is there a way are there certain lines they can look for and try to avoid it's probably just like doing a lot of math just going like okay my opponent has an arcbound ravager here or they have like a walking blister or something what's the most amount of damage that can be dealt to me and can i play around it like if I like have a walking ballista out or something and I have an arcbound ravager, it's like, okay, what are the artifacts that can sack? Like how much can he put to the walking ballista? Like what's the damage here that's going to happen and try and play around things like that. Kind of like the idea of like, if my opponent has a lightning bolt and something else in their hand, like how much damage can I afford to take to play around these things? But it's more like what's on the board and what's in the hand. Like what's the expected thing that can happen to me. And it's usually all like centered around arcbound ravager math. I would say. Yeah, arcbound math is very hard. <laughs> Galt, how much value do you think you get from opponents, you know, like me, who don't really have the ability to know every line of play you have and to know how fast they can just get got by you, right? Like, do you think that most high level players have played enough against hardened scales to know the math? Or do you think you still get a lot of value off of just being able to win seemingly out of nowhere? I would say, like, a lot of people don't necessarily know how to play against it or like do all the math and such because i had many people over the weekend where i was like okay do this 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 do this it's like killing they're like what okay go over that again i was like yeah sack here sack here like hardened scales put extra counters from here hardened scales puts an extra counter on here it's like and i'll kill you and then i had like i played against shahar shenhar and he at the end of the match he's like oh i bet this matchup's not very good for me i was like no you're actually supposed to be very favored in this matchup i just got like kind of lucky <laughs> He's like, oh, okay, it didn't It didn't seem like that from our games. And it's like, so I think people don't necessarily have as much uh, practice against it, okay. playing against it from uh, high-level players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a, even a moment where there was a, a game on, on camera where the they, everyone was debating whether or not uh, uh, Scales had the line out, and like everybody in chat was doing trying to do quick math, and everyone was going with different They're numbers. They're off by one, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I think it just sort of illustrated how tense the deck is to play, and how like getting one small number wrong somewhere can set you up for failure one turn later. And even like hundreds, even hundreds of people in chat, like they have chat lethal, even though it's not real lethal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a lot of weird things with like Ravager sacking to itself and putting on another thing. With you have when you have a hardened skills out, it puts an extra counter on it, which people always go like, "What's wh- why does it happen?" I was like, "One extra counter." <laughs> <laughs> That's what the card text says. Yep. 
So again, back to your strategy and how you're trying to win. So post-sideboard games, how do you think you're thinking and playing differently and sideboarding differently in order for you to maintain your wins? Um, With a lot of like artifact destruction coming out of the sideboard, I usually try to play things a lot slower and go like, okay, I'll act like I don't have much. Like I'll play this like hanger back walker. I'll play this arc bound worker, this walking ballista, just like kind of do like a little bit of dinky damage here and there. And then if they ever tap out or play an artifact removal spell, I'm just like, or I feel like I have a scenario or an opportunity to, to start doing something powerful. I'm like, okay, I sense weakness. I'm going to play out my hand and I'm going to kill you. And that like has happened. That happened a lot over the weekend. So moving a little away from the tournament experience and more talking about your experience with magic, what was the catalyst or what drove you to start playing magic at a more competitive level? You mentioned that you played at a game store and online. Did you start off more casual or when you got into modern, were you just competitive from the get go? Well, I first started just like playing with my friends. And then after like a couple, like a couple of months, my friends were just like, oh, let's go down to an LGS and play some tournaments. And I just got like demolished the first couple months because I didn't know what I was doing. This one yeah. does, right? Yep. I like started looking online. I, I'd actually been a uh, like semi-professional StarCraft two player before then, hmm. so I was like, I was very competitive person. So I was like, okay, let's figure out how to get better. I watched like some videos online, like built a reasonable deck, started doing well at my F and M's, which were at that time they were usually around six rounds plus a top eight. So oh my gosh, like, they would start at six p.m. and end at like two a.m. That's madness. Yeah, good lord. Yep. And there would be like $80 for first plus like 25 credit. So it was something I was like 14 or 15 at the time. I was like, that sounds great. Yeah, just grinding. Yeah. So I did those for a bit, did those for a couple months, started like for a while, I would like never make top eight. Then after like six months, I started like making top eights like nearly every single week. And then I, there was a States, it was the first SCG States that came around and my store was hosting it. And I said, okay. If I play in this event and I never play against, this was during Theros standard. I said, if I don't play against mono, mono black devotion or blue light control, I'll win the tournament. Somehow it was seven rounds for the first five rounds. Didn't play against blue light control, like Sphinx's revelation control wow. or mono black devotion. That's Somehow. impressive. Yep. So I went five Oh, I double drew into top eight. Then I played against mono black devotion, just got demolished. But <laughs> that was like my first big event, like doing well. And that like really drove me to like, if I can do well in this, like my first big event, I'm going to like keep going and trying to play high level magic and do well. I like, started playing magic online from about like a couple months after that and then just kept grinding. So would you say that Theros tournament was sort of when you realized that, oh, I'm good at this. I can I can kind of do this. I can keep doing this. I would say so. That and like people always said to me that like Grand Prix were a lot harder than FNMs and all these things. And my first Grand Prix, I went 9-0 day one, Whew. 12-3 day two after all. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm actually, like, kind of good at this game. Sure. (laughs) Seems like it. Yeah, Yeah, I had, like, seven RPTQs in a row where I lost my winning in for the PT, and I was like, I'm so close, I'm so close. And then eventually, like, this past year, got to the Pro Tour for the first time, top eight in my first GP, going to hopefully keep going from there. Yeah, it's awesome. So would you say that just persistence is a big part of this, of keeping with it, and even if you, you know, are so close and don't get it, just making sure that you get up and do it again? Yeah, I think, like, even if you know, like, you're you're a great player, like, even the best players in the world, like, don't have seven, more than 70% win rates. Yeah, You kind of right. just need to, like, keep bashing that percentage against the wall, and, like, eventually things will line up, and you'll get your, you'll get your shot. Mm-hmm. It took me, like, three, two or three years of grinding GPs before I, like, got my first top eight. And I know people that took them, like, ten plus years to get a first GP top eight or their first pro tour. Some people are just like, yeah, I 
played for 15 years, gotten this close so many times. It's just, you just have to hit your streak and you eventually get there. Sweet. What do you think are kind of the biggest mental shifts or mental level ups that you've needed to make in order to become, you know, a more professional player? Well, for me, like over the last year to two, there's a lot of these magic online uh, challenges that happen over the weekend, mm-hmm. which are usually like six to eight round tournaments. I've just been playing them every single weekend, just nonstop, just like bashing my head against them. And like, took me a while. I started top eighting them. And then I started top eighting one of them like each week, nearly now. You just like keep playing and you just, you just keep getting better. You just keep putting yourself against the best players in the world. Eventually you'll just get better. Yeah. One of the things we hear is that the magic online player base, it's like playing a GP every week. If you want to, would do, would you agree? Do you think the magic online modern player base is, is strong and a really good way for both us and our listeners to keep improving their skill? I would say so. I think the player base in the modern uh, queues online are like very, very good. Like a lot of them, like a lot of the specialists in their deck are like playing there and you'll like see new innovations just from playing against them and talking to them and like getting games in. Mm -hmm. Do you have an experience in mind, like something that happened in in real life? Do you have like a real life experience of when something clicked? Like you were like, oh, I I really, I'm getting something I didn't get before in terms of my gameplay or in terms of how this game actually works that you think would be a good takeaway for the listeners? For me personally, I used to, since playing on Magic Online and stuff, and some players at my LGS would always, there were a couple people that were like notoriously very, very slow and meticulous about their games. And for some reason before, I would always get upset about that. I was like, they're playing so slowly, like, can't they just make their play? Yeah. And then I realized it's like, well, I still play relatively quickly. Like, sometimes I'll just, like, slow down and go, like, okay, what am I doing here? What's my hand? Like, even if I, even if there's an obvious play, take 10 seconds. Go, like, okay, even with this obvious play, what am I doing down the line? Like, what's my game plan? And just, like, think about that for a second and then do your play. Mm-hmm. Don't you don't have to take like a minute to two every single turn to do things, but just take out like ten to fifteen seconds each turn. And go like, okay, what's going on here? At least, and then do your thing. Mm-hmm. That was like one of the things that like I before I would just like draw my card and instantly play whatever I was doing. Like I thought to myself, and like whenever I do well in big tournaments, it always is just like, okay, I slowed down, thought about what I was doing, and then did it. Be very meticulous. Know what's happening in the game state. Know what's happening in the board state. Play your game as best as you can. Yeah, especially in modern, you got a lot of time in that round, right? Like very yeah. few, very few games are are actively using up the fifty minutes. So, just mm-hmm. be playing a little bit slow and play, being thoughtful, I think, is really good advice for people. Yep. Yeah. yeah, like a lot of the time, I would just like play too quick and just I would mess up something. I would immediately after I made a play, I'd go like, "That was abysmal. Why did I do that? I could have just done this." And like when I started slowing down, especially playing on like playing in person, just slowing down in a big event, just going like, "Okay." Don't let anything else like distract me or anything. This is my game. I, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to win this one. Great. So thank you so much for talking to us tonight, dude. This has been great. I've learned a ton about Affinity and about preparing for tournaments. So where can our listeners find you? What's your Twitch? What's your Twitter? How can people interact with you? Um, the best place to find me is on Twitch. It's twitch.tv slash yamakiller, Y-A-M-A killer. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I should be posting on Twitter, but like I'm really lazy about posting on social media and stuff like that. But my friends are really getting on me about that. My Twitter is that Gal Schlesinger, though it is Yama Killer. It's G A L S C H L E S I N G E R. So that's my Twitter, and that's basically all that I use right now for social media and such. 
Great. And what days are you streaming? Uh, I stream right now, Mondays and Wednesdays from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. And on Saturdays and Sundays from around 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to around 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. I will sometimes be streaming on Friday from like 2 to 6 or sometimes later, depending on what's happening on those days. But Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have school, so it's hard for me to get a stream in on those days. Sure. Yeah, great. We'll be sure to include a link to the Twitch in the show notes as well. Gall, this has been super awesome. Um, I've learned a lot. Zach's learned a lot. I'm going to speak for him. I'm sure our listeners have learned a Thank lot. Um, thanks for taking the time out of your day and talking to us. Congratulations again on the the finals finish at GPLA. It sounds like sounds like you know what you're doing. I mean, there's, there's going to be continued success ahead. So keep at it, man. And uh, we'll be watching you stream. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being on here as well. Cool. Take care. Shane, that was great. It's, it's crazy to me that Gall is only 20 years old because when I was 20 years old, I uh, wasn't playing Magic. I was on my school newspaper. I was barely a gamer and I had no idea what I was going to do in life. But it looks like Gall actually has a pretty bright future as a Magic player, competitor, maybe a stockbroker. Who knows? Yeah, he seems really sharp. He's really great to talk to. He's starting to see some real success out there on the the magic circuit. So I think he's going to continue to do well and keep killing it. So um, I know that one thing we weren't able to do as much as I would have liked, and that's just because it's a, you know, we're not going to go into individual cards when we're talking to Gull. We didn't get into the individual card text as much as we usually do on these dive downs. So we're going to link to a nice Hardened Scales primer article so people can get a good look at the deck construction, see what the individual cards are if they don't know them by name, get some idea of the strategies as well. And, you know, we know, you know, Gall talked about them and, and you probably had an idea of, of what to do with the deck, but just to round things out and, and get a little bit more detail, we'll, we'll link to that as well. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now, and when we return, we will do a wind down all about the Faithless Looting Ban, or rather, lack thereof. Stay with us. So another BNR announcement comes and goes. No changes, Stan, as I expected. Not only that, but they didn't give us any thinking in their BNR announcement article about how they're analyzing modern at all. We got a little bit of that after the fact, but in general, the BNR announcement was all about Nexus of Fate and Standard. Yeah, screw it. They don't owe us anything. I mean, that's just kind of an acknowledgement saying, we just banned something in modern. You guys deal with it for now. If you can't, we'll make something happen, more or less, right? Yeah, and there was a ton of speculation leading up to the announcement on Monday one of my favorite takeaways that people had... Too much speculation, honestly. People are so much gobbledygook. One person who had very good gobbledygook, perhaps wasn't even technically gobbledygook, but in fact, a song of the gods, was Andrew Ellenbogen, who we mention on the pod every once in a while. How many, t- how many times have we quoted this guy? This guy knows what he's guy. talking about. We should probably get him on here, too. He tweeted on Monday, just before the announcement, that... Looting is in the best two modern decks, and there may come a day when it does need to be banned because of the strategies it enables. But he wrote that today is not that day, and bear in mind, he's a player, not someone on R&D, um, and he thinks the format has just not settled, and it's not like Dredge and Phoenix are six out of every top eight. Uh, that's something that we saw yeah. is definitely true in regionals as well. 
Yeah, it's only four out of every top eight. If that. I think at most, there was one top eight that had three. Yeah, I mean, I'm just talking about uh, the GPLA was four out of top eight. But yeah, not in not in the uh, the regionals. Right. So if Faithless Looting gets banned one day, I don't think anyone's going to be surprised. Especially if the trend continues as it is right now. And the format doesn't really shake out the way R&D and players hope it does. Likewise, on a stream with R&D members Paul Chion and Melissa Del Tara, they went on the record saying, we just made a change to Modern when they were referring to banning KCI, and R&D wants the format to settle out. Yeah, Paul said Modern self-correcting. You know, not to say we're never making a change, but it hasn't shown us enough to pull the trigger. So this is what I'm getting at earlier, though. Like, if Modern self-correcting, what are the corrections? We've seen, is it Phoenix be a huge portion of the metagame, and it's still a huge portion of the metagame at regionals, when people almost certainly had to expect it. So what are the adjustments that people can be making? I mean, I know that we'll see them happen sort of naturally over time, and perhaps people just aren't playing the right decks or using the right strategies against it. And like you said, maybe they just still don't know the best ways to play against it and what strategies they should be using to fight against it. But it's a little unnerving. One of the things that I've been focusing on and thinking about are we have five modern Grand Prix happening in like the next six weeks. And then the Mythic Championship, which is modern, is coming right after those. And then Modern Horizons happens six weeks after that. So Watsi is likely hesitant to make some changes so soon after that KCI ban, like you said. Not only that, but the London Mulligan rule is going to emerge in London. So... The format is going to change, and for all we know, the mulligan rule might change the way some decks and matchups play out too, which could steer the format in a whole other direction as well that we can't even predict. I mean, I'm on record on this where I'm thinking it cannot do anything good. I think it can only do bad. Yeah. But, you know, we'll wait and see. Maybe it's going to be awesome. You know, Like, people were very concerned over the Scry mulligan, the Vancouver mulligan, yeah, I believe. And so we'll see. Wait and see. Um, I'm not going to like stop playing modern because of it. So here's a question. Is there any scenario where a deck that appears 18 times across 10 tournaments isn't a problem? You know what I mean? We talk about this giant meta share being an issue. Why is that an issue necessarily? Can we define that problem for our listeners? I don't think we can. I think it's a feeling. You know, if people are unhappy and it's either i have to play this or i'm not going to be performing as well as i can then people don't like that scenario i think people want to have maybe four or five or six you know something like that number of decks that they feel that they can sleeve up and have some kind of competitive chance with And when I say, you know, these are people who probably have, there's a lot on the line, right? So it's not just, I want five decks I can take to my LGS and win with. It's, I want to be able to take this to a GP and win with it. Or if people aren't expecting this deck, I can still come and win with it. But I think we're in a universe where the very best players are continually turning to Izzet Phoenix and they're continually winning with it. And people look at it as the tier zero of the format. And so when we talk about maybe people aren't taking the right decks or deck up against it, that's not a great place either, right? Where it's either play uh ensnaring bridge deck or lose to Phoenix. That's not great. But we're seeing across these top eights that 
It's not like the winner is either Is It Phoenix or an Ensnaring Bridge deck. Yeah. Variant, maybe that's variance too, right? I mean, I, like I said, I think I don't think you can look at the winner and just say this 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 deck won. I think we can say that it was twenty two percent of all the top eights across ten different tournaments. Not a good look. Shane, are you considering picking the deck up yourself? Oh no, no. the The broken deck I'm going to play is going to be uh, Dredge. I mean, I don't even know if Birds is considered broken. I don't know if you can look at it that way. But um, I think that the the powerful tier one deck I'm going to be keeping playing right now is going to be uh, Dredge. Yeah, to be honest, I probably want to get more reps with it myself. And even though I think I mentioned that I can't win with the deck to save my life, I, I had more success with it when it at first emerged and when it was really catching people by surprise back then when people were still playing Swift Spear before Terramander was even in it. But that suggestion I shared with our listeners is something that I've been suggesting to myself as well, which is there's worse ways to spend your time than practicing one of the best decks in the format. So Stan, bear with me here. Here's my hot take slash cold prediction, okay? So we have five GPs coming up. If Is It Phoenix is going to keep seeing a even 15 to 20% portion of the metagame, Watsi could be incentivized to do some kind of emergency ban prior to the Mythic Championship. Um, that also could shake things up to get eyes on that broadcast, but it's kind of a dangerous and not really well-liked idea at all, and it's really going to spoil any protesting that goes into the Mythic Championship, and they already dislike modern MCs enough um, why make them hate it even more? But otherwise, I think if everything is pretty reasonable, Phoenix is maybe 10% of the day two metagame. They're probably going to let things coast until Horizons comes and blows everything up. Or maybe it just makes, is it Phoenix better? What do you think? Yeah, to be honest, I'm hoping that they don't suddenly do an emergency banning because then everything gets crazy and all the learning we're doing has to be basically started from scratch almost as the metagame needs to settle all over again frankly if they were going to ban it they had the opportunity they have done emergency bannings in the past but i think the last one was standard and if i recall correctly it was like a week after a bnr announcement yeah they they, they like axed feldar guardian or something like that yeah. because they're like oh yeah this is actually really bad yeah so we talk about emergency bannings because we know it's within the realm of possibility but it's so rare and at this point, between R&D and play design, I think WotC knows what they're doing. And in general, make wise choices with the ban hammer. Yeah, we'll see. Like we said over and over, I mean, Faithless is probably on the watch list. Manamorphose is probably also on the watch list, to be honest. And, and part of me wonders... That would be a more interesting ban. I agree. You know, because I don't think Faithless looting is the problem necessarily in Dredge and Phoenix. It's just the common denominator. The problem with Dredge and Phoenix is that Dredge has all this extra free reach, all these free lightning helixes in the form of Creeping Chill. And in my eyes, one of the biggest issues for Is It Phoenix is Manamorphose, which is both a free spell that gets you deeper through your deck. So I And Dredge is also super hated out. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not it's not anywhere near the metagame percentage of, of Phoenix. And so if you ban Manamorphose and you don't touch Faithless Looting, you let Dredge continue to exist, continue to be hated out. And you potentially nerf as a Phoenix back into the realm of more fair, or at least more in line with the power level of other decks. But we don't, I don't really know. I don't know if people have been testing it without Manamorphose or what, but it's probably still quite good. 
but maybe not good enough. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Because in my eyes, when the deck first emerged, it was kind of an evolution of, you know, something between Storm and Blue Moon. It, you know, had some of the same cards from both. So blue-red spells decks are going to continue to be playable. Maybe they'll be Jeskai, maybe they'll be Grixis, maybe they'll just be straight blue-red. Is it Phoenix being such a great payoff for spells decks? I think is probably here to stay. I doubt Watsi wants to ban one of their newest cards from modern. Yeah. And if Faithless is gone, or Manamorphose for that matter, us is it mages will find a way to adapt. Stan, wanna drop a hot spoiler? Uh, for next week's episode with our back-to-back interviews. Yeah, so if you liked this week's episode, I think you're going to love next week's. It's a little different, but we have another conversation with a very accomplished magic professional, as well as one of the architects of Is It Phoenix, none other than Ross Merriam. You probably know him from his countless accomplishments across the SCG Tour. We mentioned him earlier in this podcast when we talked about his results in the scg regionals he's one of the hosts of the scg verse series on twitch it's also on youtube and he spent like two hours with me and dave going deep on is it phoenix as well as modern as a whole somewhere down the road we started talking about legacy elves his thoughts about possible cards in modern horizons it was a trip Yeah, looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, and I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. It was a really unique experience to talk with someone at his level. Our listeners are going to learn a lot from it. I've been fixated on some of the takeaways ever since I had the conversation. It was revelatory for me and changed a lot of the way I evaluate cards and the modern strategy as a whole. I think anyone who's going to listen to this interview is probably going to elevate themselves a little bit. Yeah, it's going to be rad. Having back-to-back interviews with people who are playing at a super high caliber is going to be rad for us and our listeners. So yeah, can't wait to hear it next week. Shane, thank you so much for this very unique conversation with just the two of us. Two of us. We can make it if we try. We don't get this kind of quality time together too often. So I appreciate it. Just hanging out with my bud Stanislav. I love you too, Shaneislav. I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, please make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. And if you use iTunes, please leave us a review or a rating. Or both. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or prick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email us, thedivedown at gmail.com. Likewise, if you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there. We typically have some fun conversations on our thread every week. You can find me on twitch.tv slash stan underscore I-S-L-A-V, where I've been streaming modern on MTGO. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and win a regional! regional!